Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. We're in progress. We're in progress. Hi. Hi. Uh, welcome. Where are you today? I am at Jennifer Gallardo um, Birth Center, uh, Andalus Water Birth Center. Still in Oregon. You're still in Oregon. Okay. <laughs> um, just want to let everybody know that this is uh, Birthing Instincts podcast number 235. <laughs> and uh, I want to preview this, let everybody know before we get into talking about and catching up that we have a guest today, Nicole Morales, who is a expert in breach and has written a book. And so today's podcast is going to focus sort of back on obstetrical issues or uh, pregnancy related issues. We get off track sometimes like last week's podcast, but it was important. Um, I've already had some really positive feedback about last week's podcast. It's only been up for a couple hours, so that's that's good. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm visiting with Augustine. So she told me to tell you to say hello. Yeah. But she says hello to probably all our listeners too. She's very well known. She's yeah. Great. She gets quoted almost every time I give a seminar or something. I actually end up quoting her about several things. So that's really cool. Um, I just wanted to wish you a happy day of uh, happy vanilla cupcake day. <laughs> I should get a vanilla cupcake. Today. Well, yeah. And tomorrow is pickle day. Oh, I like pickles. That's a good yeah, day. So I got I got this uh, website, which is really cool. And and um, a week from, when this podcast comes out on the 17th, mm -hmm. it's National Butter Day, National Take a Hike Day, <laughs> National Homemade Bread Day, <laughs> National Wow. Bacalao day. <laughs> so you can just you can just claim a day for whatever you want. That's correct. But somehow it gets put in a list someplace. Well, we should work on it. Well, and I also want to wish a happy birthday to my twins. Uh, they're turning uh, 29 tomorrow on Veterans Day. Wow. So happy birthday to them. Speaking of veterans, today is the uh, birthday of the Marine Corps. So I want to shout out uh, happy birthday to all those veterans and members of the uh, currently active members of the Marine Corps and thank them for their service. Awesome. Right? Right? Okay. So how do the visit... Right. How did the visit go with the um, Green Bank Birth Center? Um, you know, it's a beautiful birth center. Actually, it's a great opportunity for somebody. Um, they have a, a center, like an actual birth center, and then a building where they have um, different practitioners, and it's in the middle of the forest. And um, it wasn't for me because it is um, Medicare-based practice. Um, which limits your ability to do things like uh, VBACs, which, you know, I would love to provide services for people who, who, you know, are underprivileged and need access to midwifery care. I'd really, my heart is in that, but I don't want to say yes to something that's going to inhibit my ability to be able to care for people like VBACs. And, and Medicaid doesn't allow you to do that? 
Um, it's either the Medicaid portion or the birth center portion in Washington. But, you know, as I was talking to her, it was very clear how she wanted to hand over the practice because she wanted that to be available for her community when she retired, which I totally understand. Um, it just didn't feel like a good fit for me. So anybody who's uh, finishing their midwifery training right now and wants to move to Whidbey Island? So, oh, yeah, it's a, it's it a great opportunity. They just basically would get a practice handed to them that's profitable. It's it's a really good, good idea. Yeah, and you also said you yeah. might, might be meeting with Carol Gauchy. Gauchy. I, I did, and we had a lovely time. She drove me um, to the, the state park, but it was we were rained out, so we couldn't see anything at um, Olympia State Park. But we spent a lot of lovely time talking about classical midwifery and we're going to set a date for her to come on and so you guys can hear uh you know she was a unlicensed midwife for 25 years and then became licensed and um really holds the torch for classical traditional midwifery to uh to be honored and to you know pass down that wisdom which is a passion of mine so i'd love for you guys to that so, needs, that so needs to happen. Um, and I'm really, I would be really excited to talk to her about, about traditional midwifery because the, uh, well, before I get to talk a little bit about um, my experience in San Antonio, uh, we, yeah. need to, we need to uh, promote one of our sponsors. So let's do that real quick. We have to take a break here to talk about Element. That is spelled L-M-N-T, but it's pronounced Element. And as you all know, because you've been listening to the podcast religiously, everybody, Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. It means a lot of salt, no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. Um, that comes in multiple flavors. Bliss likes the mango chili. Yum. <laughs> we always talk about that. Yum. Right, Bliss? And then uh, according, yeah. according to the FDA, about 70% of sodium in the United States is consumed from packaged and processed foods. So when you adopt a whole foods diet, you are eliminating processed foods and sodium from your diet. We encourage all our listeners to try to eat healthy. Don't follow my, don't follow my example. <laughs> um, uh, we don't recommend you reintroduce processed foods for your salt intake. And that's why Element is a really good option for you because it's got all the good stuff and none of the junk and no sugar, right? Right, right. absolutely. So uh, if you go to drinklmnt.com slash birthing code word birthing instincts, you'll be able to get a free sample pack with only the cost of shipping. That's drinklmnt backslash birthing instincts. Awesome. I want to hear about Antonio, uh, San Antonio, but I want to tell you something first yeah. before you before you I know we have limited time before we our guest comes on. We're but good. We're I good. We're good. I've got it, I've got it all arranged. We're good. You're awesome. Um, I was at Bellevue Birth Center near Salem yesterday. It's adorable, quaint birth center in the middle of the country. Um, I put some pictures up on Instagram. But I watched them do a procedure called the O-Shot. Have you heard of such a thing? The O-Shot? No. Yeah. How do you spell it? Okay. O. O-Shot. Like oh, orgasm. No, I'm, oh, no, I have not. Oh, <laughs> oh, I have not heard of that. Oh, so basically what they do is they draw your own blood and they spin it twice to get out um, the platelet-rich plasma. 
which they re-inject into your clitoris ah. and your anterior, uh, your the anterior wall of your vagina, also known as your G spot. Um, and it is supposed to help with uh, heightened desire orgasms, and also it can help with incontinence and um, rejuvenation of that tissue. So well, I got to witness it being done yesterday and uh, it's, it's interesting to say the least. Did it hurt? Um, <clears throat> they numb, they numb you up. Oh, I didn't okay. have it done by the way. Um, they numb you up. And also this particular birth center has nitrous oxide. So they offered that as a, as a way of dealing with oh. the um, uncomfortable portion of it. You know, I don't know about the whole increasing your, uh, orgasms, unless you're the kind of person, unless you're someone who has difficulty with that, then it might be something you would be really interested in. But I am interested in the fact that this is something that could be an alternative to surgery, um, for things like prolapse or, um, helping with incontinence. So that's kind of, it's kind of interesting to use your own blood for that. Yeah. Well, we at the birthing these podcasts are always looking for these creative ideas, but we can't endorse it until we check it out. So now that you've mentioned it to me, I will do some checking it out of it because I, you know, it seems to me that this is something that would have hit the rounds of the medical community. The reason being is the medical community is always looking for, for ways to make money outside the insurance realm. Not me, but my, you know, in the old fashioned office system. And I don't see that. I didn't never heard of that before. You know, yeah, so the midwives, the midwives are doing it and he definitely was very open to coming and talking to us. So if you decide that you want to uh, bring him on as a guest, he is willing. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, you got excited about that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm a little skeptical, but I thought it was interesting. nonetheless. Yeah. yeah you, you, you know, we, we sort of need to be a little bit skeptical of these things because they do make money for the people that are promoting them. So, yeah. Uh, Right. And I've been, so, I've been um, tell me about, Oh, go ahead. All right. I was just, I was going to say, tell me about San Antonio. You said that you had a really nice trip. Yeah. San Antonio was great. Uh, first of all, like uh, it, they, you know, I, I was only superficially scratching the surface of the midwifery community there, but there, everybody was really warm and receptive. Um, Texas hospitality totally mm. uh, for sure. Um, I, I, you know, there were some of the husbands were there, Mark, I want to say Mark, uh, thank you to Mark and Bill Jack for, for like hosting me, taking me out for a beer and doing the things nice. that, that guys, uh, Mark took me to the Alamo. So I got to see the Alamo. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm not even talking about the, the fact that the breach class was great. It was uh, just pure lectures. And I did three lectures. Uh, it was basically about seven hours of me talking. And, um, but we did not do the hands-on. It wasn't set up for that. And then I got to do a real, real thrill for me was to give the commencement speech. And, and uh, I worked on that pretty hard and, and it was well-received. I want people to know that if they want to see the whole speech, it's on my Rumble account and it's on the link tree on my uh, Instagram page at Birthing Instincts on Instagram. You can go to the link tree and scroll down and you can watch. It's about 23 minutes long. And of course, it's usually it's me. And if you know it's me, when I'm trying to say something, sometimes I get choked up and I have to remember to breathe. But, but um, yeah, I think I'll read a couple excerpts if we have time today at the very end. Um, 
from Thanks. the from the thing. But it was it was great, and I, I was really a thrill for me to do that. I didn't mind the traveling; it was really easy. You know, I flew I flew first class, which was nothing. It was really like business class. I mean, there was no first class. The seats didn't do anything special or anything like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it was really easy check in, easy check out. It was no, it was really not a problem. I just don't like wearing masks that long. So yeah. that that was a hard that was hard for me. Um, yeah. Also. Uh, when I got back on on Sunday, I got back Saturday night. On Sunday morning, uh, the Breach Without Borders team was here teaching yeah. at, at the at Beth Cannon's um, office, the Birthing Rhythm office. And I, I went by early in the morning um, to say hello to uh, David Hayes and Betty Ann Davis, nice. and it, it was great. They were there was um, it was just a nice reunion, and we were they were talking a lot about the history of Breach, and I said something which may sound a little e egotistical, but I said, you know what? 50 years from now, you, the three of us will be the history of breach. That's cool. Yeah. And they, yeah. they'll stop for a second. They go, yeah, yeah, actually that's probably true. Um, Love it. Yeah. So B Betty Ann gave me a, a, a book. She called, it's called the rethinking of the breach birth, uh, the physiology of uh, rethinking the physiology, the physiology of vaginal breach birth. And, for people that are doing breach deliveries, it's a really good book. And I look it up. I, um, you know, it's under uh, Betty Ann Davis is the name, D-A-V-I-S-S. -S. You probably can find it on Amazon. And what's really interesting about it is there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago uh, talking about the timing of the breach. Once it reaches the umbilicus, how you should have three to five minutes. And it gives you these, these parameters to have about, you know, how sort of having an algorithm. And I, I knew that Betty Ann wasn't in favor of that because we'd spoken about it at the time. And she, and she writes a little chapter in here about it. And she says, does video research risk reviving Friedman's curve? And it does, it, she, it makes a very clear, very cogent argument that if you start having charts that tell you how long you should be doing this from this point to this point, then people start looking at the clock and they start being a little more nervous about things rather than just individualizing each case and deciding, yeah. does this baby need help? Should I get it out now? Should, or can we keep waiting? If we have a three to five minute window and this is what's supposed to happen here and this is what's supposed to happen here. And if this doesn't happen by this time, and now you set up a structure. And what happens with structures is it all too commonly becomes shackles and you become um, stuck in that situation. So. You know, we'll talk a little bit more about that with um, with Nicole when she comes out. But I just thought it was very insightful of Betty Ann to do this. And they look at breach a whole different way. And David and I and Betty Ann all teach breach differently. Yeah. And yet, neither one of us uh, is, you know, trying to tell the other person we should do it one way or another way. So that was very interesting. Um, is Betty Ann a doctor or a midwife? Betty Ann's a midwife. She's a midwife. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think she's a nurse and a midwife. She's from she's in Ottawa, Canada, is her base. All right. Okay. Before we get too before we get too bogged down, um, uh, I had I had a breach in labor yesterday, and we ended up transporting. So we know we talked about the nice breach birth we had the week before, and the twins at home. And sometimes labor gets stalls out. And this this woman was ruptured for thirty two hours, which was not an issue. She was laboring for twenty hours, and about eight hours into her labor, she uh, we were deciding because she was contracting regularly. We were deciding whether the team should all come. So the midwife down in Orange County checked her for us and she was only one centimeter. Mm -hmm. And 
it wasn't the one centimeter where you're sticking the finger in the baby's butt and thinking she's one centimeter. It was a true one centimeter. That okay. happens sometimes. It happened to me when I used to be doing in the hospital. The nurse would call you and tell you she's one centimeter. And she was actually just feeling the, the baby's anus. Poor baby. Well, and yeah. And then, and then the mother's like eight or nine centimeters dilated and you don't, and you don't know it. But yeah. she was one centimeter. And then 12 hours later, we checked her again and she was one to two centimeters. And she'd been correcting for 20 hours. Yeah. Um, so we made the decision to transport to the hospital where she had a C-section and everybody seems happy. And, and that's, it's a reasonable choice, but she got to have the birth that she wanted, at least the trial that she wanted. And she got, the baby got to pick its birthday and the baby got exposed to mom's bacteria and the, the benefits of labor. So it was all good. Yeah. And it was her choice to go in. Sounds like. <laughs> yeah, we went through the choices. I mean, they're really at that point, they were, they were, we were thinking about should she go, maybe possibly go to Barry Brock and get induced? Uh, would he do that for us? But, you know, at one centimeter, one to two centimeters after this long, you know, I wasn't really thinking that that was a good idea and neither did they. And so they mm. made the choice to go in locally for a C-section. Because some people, you know, some people take longer than that to dilate, but I, but I get it. I just want to say that sometimes that happens. Yeah, it, it does. But with breaches, you really can't be, you know, we talk about the fact that they're slightly different than head down babies because labor has to progress smoothly. Or there's a little bit more um, scrutiny what's going on. And we're not, you know, we're augmenting breaches tends to lead to worse outcomes than augmenting head down babies, even though that leads to worse outcomes too. But nonetheless, yeah. Um, so yeah. So, but this is part of the um, process and about 20% of my primate breaches, of course she was a primate, um, 20% of them end up mm -hmm. With, a, with transporting for a cesarean section. Okay, just a brief follow-up from last week before we introduce our guest. Um, my uh, patient's husband, Andy, went to, was uh, I'd written them a prescription for ivermectin, I don't know, maybe five months ago, and they went to get a refill. And he said that insurance is now not covering these things, and they were charging, they charged, wanted to charge him $585 for the refill, which is about 10 bucks a pill. For something that really costs about 10 cents a pill. Wow. So this is sort of um, some price gouging that's going on. Even there's an online place that I saw that somebody sent me through Instagram today, and they're also charging 10 bucks a pill. So this is not, this is not right. This is not right. If you're going to offer it to people, you should make it affordable and not be gouging people. It's like charging 10 bucks a bottle of water during a hurricane or something like that. You shouldn't be doing that sort of thing. Exactly. And then and then the eagerness with which we're seeing this five to 11 ages, five to 11 thing um, be gobbled up by certain people. These, they almost seem excited about it. And I got an email from UCLA and I, I have to read. I have to just read a little part of it. Um, OK, um, this is written by a, a, a doctor named Annabelle de St. Maurice. She's an MD and Masters of Public Health as well. She's a pediatrician and infectious disease expert at UCLA. And she's trying to explain what process led experts to say this is safe and effective vaccine for young children. And of course, she works for UCLA, so you know she's going to be totally pro the vaccine. But let's listen to what she says. There are no medications that are studied more and more rigorously than monitored than vaccines. <laughs> uh, okay, new vaccines undergo multiple phases of study. It begins with preclinical studies with formulations tested in animal models to make sure there are no safety concerns and to see if some level of immunity can be established. Okay. 
Well, I don't know that that was done here. I know that they did test uh, this sort of uh, mRNA vaccines on ferrets or foxes or something. I think they all died, um, but <laughs> I can't be sure of that. But I, I can tell you that it, they didn't find safety uh, in animals when they tested this thing. Um, first, they start out with phase one trial with a small group of human volunteers. Phase two and phase three include a much greater number of volunteers, right? It, it received emergency youth authorization from the FDA in December of 2020, which allowed for widespread administration. The vaccine received full FDA approval in August of 21 for people 16 and older. Well, that's not exactly true, actually. The vaccine they're giving right now is the Pfizer, um, I, I can't, Biomed or whatever it's called, is not the one that's FDA approved. The FDA approved one is not out yet. So that's exact, not exactly true what she's saying there. Similarly, she said Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for children ages five to 11 underwent these same clinical trial phases before receiving emergency youth authorization from the FDA on October 29th, okay? Well, if that's so true, then why did we, we quote Eric Rubin, the doctor from Harvard and the editor of the New England Journal saying, something to the effect that uh, we're never going to learn about the safety of this vaccine until we start giving it. Right. So she's it's lying. She's lying. Contradictory for sure. Lastly, she says more than 400 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines have been given to more than 200 million people. The safety of this vaccine has been studied both before being licensed and after receiving emergency youth authorization in these 200 million individuals. Um, the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine formula for a child ages five to 10 is a smaller dose, one third of the amount given to the people ages 12 to older. So that's the first time I've ever heard that they're lowering the, uh, the dosage for smaller people, which makes perfect sense. But mm -hmm. the fact is that they, they said that they're, they're trying to detect whether there's been any serious adverse events, even though they might be rare. And it's like, there's been lots of adverse events. Yes. The, the propaganda is, um, it's, it's just coming in droves. They're almost doubling down on the vaccine is failing. It's not working really well. People are getting sick with it. You're having to get boosters. And now they're coming out and they want to give it to people who are not really affected by this virus at all. Right. All right. And she says that children can contract COVID-19 and potentially experience serious outcomes from it. Okay. So potentially experience is like, risky or like, you know, a little bit or whatever. This is, right. this is, um, once you start to see how they use these words, you can't unsee it. And so yeah. they, they could potentially experience, well, they, yeah, potentially, I could potentially, you know, have some terrible thing happen to me. Does that mean I'm not going to live my life or go out on the street because I might get hit by a, a meteor? You know, it could happen, I suppose probably happened, right? This vaccine has undergone very rigorous evaluation. Patients should rest assured that a lot of thought, a lot of effort, and a lot of scientific review has gone into authorizing this vaccine for emergency use for five to 11 year olds. All right, I'll just leave it at that. All right, that-, that Okay. They just, they just out and out lie. Yeah. All right. It's pretty, it's pretty sad. Okay, so we have a guest. Yay. Let me bring her in. All right. So uh, welcome, Nicole. Let me introduce her. Nicole Morales is a home birth midwife who practices in San Diego, California. She's a spinning babies approved trainer, teaches at the local midwifery school. 
which is Nizoni, I believe, and works with breach advocacy, including doing body work for breach in the third trimester. She, along with co-author Jamie Mose, I hope I'm saying that right. Okay, she's nodding. Just released a book called, can you unmute yourself? Yeah. Just released a book called The Breach Release, Opening Pathways for Midwifery and Prenatal Body Work, where body work, birth work, anatomy, trauma, informed care, and storytelling all come together. I've had the pleasure of collaborating with Nicole on many home breach and twin births, and every time it's a joy to watch her skills and bedside manner. Welcome, Nicole, to the Birthing Instincts podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes. And I haven't had the pleasure, I don't believe, of being in the birth birth, um, space with you, but Nicole was one of my teachers at Nijoni, and uh, you may not know this, Stu, but I was um, I was courting her to be one of my preceptors, but it didn't work out because of distance. So um, I have a lot of respect for Nicole. And so I'm so glad you're joining us today. Wow, I'm coming in with lots of gratitude. Thank you all. <laughs> yeah, Nicole has sort of been in some way a mentor and a preceptor to me. So she may not know that, but, but she has been. I, you know, when I do a birth with her, I, I learn stuff every time, so. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I, you know, I was never an expert in the midwifery model of care. You guys are. I'm not. I mean, I'm becoming an expert. At some point in my life, I'll be an expert, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to, I, I remember Dr. Nathan Riley talking about um, calling himself like 30% expert in certain things. And I've kind of taken to that, like, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a 40% expert in this. Or <laughs> no, that, that's an honest that, way of looking at it, for sure. Yeah, keep that humility in there. So so tell us a little bit about your book. Um, I, I have some, you know, I, I, I just got it yesterday. <laughs> so, uh, or maybe it was the day before. I just was able to yeah. look at it a little bit yesterday. I've got some questions for you, but, but tell us why you wrote the book and what, is, what it's about. Well, you know, this book started out as a 25 page paper, um, mostly kind of more mechanics about how do we um, begin to see uh, fetal positioning as it's related to uh, anatomy? And also then kind of moving on to um, external cephalic version preparation. How do we make a kinder and gentler version of that um, and some external cephalic version shortcuts? And um, I've had that paper sitting around for a few years now. And so I asked my friend Jamie to hold me accountable and help me make it into maybe a 50 page book or something like that. And we did. So starting in May, we just, uh, she started helping me and it ended up being, you know, a 400 page book. So, um, that's kind of how it came to be. And, you know, part of it is also just the fact that we have kind of shared storytelling, um, group value systems and shared language and, about especially a trauma-informed care and what that looks like, um, autonomy of, uh, of, of birth and health practices. So, so that's kind of how it developed. There's a lot in this book that, that as I skimmed through it, there's some quotes and some storytelling about the woman with the golden hair. Maybe you could elaborate on that in a, in a little bit, but it seems like there's a lot of wisdom in this book that you're not going to get from a textbook or even a a Dr. Stu reach each breach or a birth a breach without borders uh, breach course. This goes well beyond that, and even the title, the breach release. What, what what's what's the significance of the title? Well, I think that the title is kind of um, 
changed in my perspective over time. It kind of started as literally a two-hour body balancing session. How do we release the bridge in the sense of um, creating opportunities and shifting paradigms so babies can go head down if they're able to by using gravity and movement after doing re releasing muscles. But it also became this thing that, you know, we're working with so many families who are coming in because I, I do, I do a lot of body uh, breach advocacy and body work for people in the third trimester who are presenting breach, who feel like they don't have any options. They don't have Dr. Stu as their provider or um, somebody who's um, usually able to provide a breach um, or willing to provide um, a vaginal breach birth. So they're coming in already traumatized by a cesarean they haven't had. And so a lot of people are, their nervous systems are um, in a fight, flight, freeze. And so it's kind of, how do we attend to people and um, also holding accountable a system that has uh, limited these options too, and kind of keeping it in there that there may not be anything to fix about this baby's position. It also might be the system. That's the problem. Um, but also that, you know, also validating the parents who are coming in in these positions and not wanting to look for something further, but really wanting this baby to turn. So like, how do we hold the, hold the, hold them within the midwifery model of care, just even if it is for two hours at a time. So, so you are a provider in California. And we've talked on the podcast many times about um, as midwives here practicing in California, we um, it's against the law. It's against our law to deliver, to, to support moms delivering vaginal breach. Um, you consider yourself to be someone who is skilled in delivering. Maybe, maybe you'd put a percentage to that, but to keep yourself humble, but um you you could you could support these families who are coming in and you have a law that says that you can't that must be really frustrating for you oh incredibly i mean i think that i'm, I'm my third baby was born breech here in my house where i am right now and um so that is really what sent me down this pathway is her birth and i started of course looking into where am i going to find these answers over how i can handle how can I know normal breach? How can I uh, work with uh, gravity and movement and for complications and maternal positioning? Um, so that's really where I started is trying to go externally, find trainings, um, get trained in vaginal breach. And um, I also had a history where I, I learned a bit about um, using the Rovoso and I was exposed to um, traditional midwives um, in a midwifery conference at the beginning of my career um, back when, before I even became a midwife. And so that influenced how I saw different things too. Right. Um, so I was out there looking for this having to do with birth because that's where I was concentrating. And it seemed that pregnancy kept chasing me around. I ended up with lots of different people who are pregnant coming to see me and, and, uh, but as far as attending breach legally, you know, that's a restriction that is unethical. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think, I think we're all in good company when it comes to that, those feelings. Yeah. So would you say that your, um, the work that you're doing is kind of a, a hybrid between some of this traditional indigenous work that you learned and, um, 
I know that you did a lot of training also with um, spinning babies. So would, would you say it's kind of an extension or a hybrid of, of those modalities? Well, I think that anytime that um, we're recognizing soft tissues in relationship to fetal positioning, that we find the roots in indigenous midwifery around the world. We, you know, it's not, um, I'm not necessarily using things I learned by indigenous midwives, but I, I can't um, forego the fact that there's connections to how and um, that exposure has affected me and how yeah. I see birth, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think that a lot of what I'm doing is um, acknowledging that soft tissues uh, are affecting where the baby is, right? That it's not just the baby's positioning, it's the relationship between the baby and what I call the womb space around it, you know? Do you want to say more about, about that, about, about how well, you, well, you know, I mean, it's like you have a baby who's, and, and all of you know this, I mean, I think obstetricians and midwives know this, that, you know, what the baby's uh, position is determined by the amniotic fluid and where the placenta lies. But then we also have, you know, of course, the shape of the uterus or fibroids or scar tissue um, placement of the organs. And so the right obliquity of the uterus, where it's slightly to the back on the right-hand side, slightly to the, um, to the front on the left-hand side due to organ placement. So all of these things affect the, the, um, fetal positioning, but even, even thinking about it, you know, I, I like to use the metaphor of the, um, the baby in the cradle, you know, that you don't hold the cradle, the cradle doesn't hold the baby from one side. It's, you know, you cradle a baby in all your arms. But it's your whole body that's holding that baby, not just your hands, you know. And so thinking about the um, connective tissue systems and nervous system that's holding the baby as well, right, inside the womb space. So um, from your perspective, Nicole, do you have theories from your all the years of you've been practicing an observation? Why do you think babies are breech? Oh, I, I don't think that, I mean, what are we going to say that grandma's great grandma's baby, you know, had breech babies and grandma had breech babies and mom had breech babies and this baby shouldn't be breech. I mean, I'll just start there. The fact is that there's so much we don't know, but I do believe some babies just missed an opportunity and it just happened to be a constellation effect. Sometimes, you know, it is the scar tissue that's, um, from, abdominal surgeries that are holding this baby in a specific position. And it doesn't have to do like, it's, it's looking at how do we create new possibilities so that this baby can go head down, which makes people's lives easier. And at the same time, you know, and, and then of course makes me feel good if the baby turns in a session with me, <laughs> I'm like, Oh yeah, <laughs> you feel good about that. But at the same time, you know, um, babies are breached for all sorts of reasons. It also could be I mean, we know that with research, there's thyroid that's involved sometimes. Um, uh, it has to do with fetal anomalies, has to do with location of the placenta. Um, it's a shape of ribs. I find uh, there's KG ribs. And so sometimes the babies don't make it past those KG ribs in the same way. Um, so lot, lots of different, different things. Um, really tight abdominal muscles where the baby finds more room underneath the rib than it does like actually in the abdomen, abdominal area. So the head just kind of stays tucked right up in there. You so know, there's, we, there's different reasons. I just think it's a variation of normal. And then we say that all the time, 
And yet there's, like you said er, very early in our discussion, you said there's this intense pressure to like get this baby to turn. And um, if it's not gonna turn on its own with all the usual things that all breech practitioners tell people to not the stuff that's in your book, but spinning baby stuff, the acupuncture, the moxa, the, you know, the Webster technique and all that stuff, um, that they have to go through an ECV, right? Because, they're, because of the lack of choices, not because there's anything wrong with a baby being breached, but because of the lack of either laws, the, uh, the unethical laws preventing people who know how to do breach from doing breach or the, the, the obtuseness of people who don't want to learn to do breach. But um, in, your, in your book, you talk a little bit about the success rates of vaginal birth after a ECV are lower. Okay. Why do you, yeah. why do you think that is? What's your theory be, uh, as to what, because it probably, I mean, you wouldn't say that unless you thought it was true. So, or unless you have data to say that it's true. So um, in my experience, that happens too. You go to all the trouble of turning a baby, you turn the baby, and then they go into labor a week later, or they get induced immediately at the hospital because they had a successful version. And then they end up with a section anyway. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think that it's, um, I think there's two different ways you can approach that. First, you know, babies have inside information. And so I think we need to listen to babies about what's going on. But two, you know, the fact is, is that once you go in and you like force a baby to go head down, what you've also done is you've shifted the uterus and the fascia of the uterus and all of the, the organs and the baby's possibly got an arm up here. And so we, we think about, um, I think from the spinning babies paradigm, we think about physiology or balance before force, but we have to also think about the physiology and balance after force that once there's that been that intervention, we don't always think about that. Um, we've affected the anatomy and that includes the nervous system. Yeah. Um, because the problem is that some people have, um, I always say that, you know, with external cephalic versions, there's this wide range of what it can look like. And, and you know, this, on one end, it can be two fingers or, you know, barely turning baby, but on the other end, it's true providers with their entire weight pushing on the baby. And um, it's called the same thing, but we know it's not the same for the person who's receiving that pressure um, in their body. And we also know that the, the uterus is innervated on all three layers with them. Um, you know, the, the parasympathetic nervous system is innervated on the outer layer and then the sympathetic in the, in the lower two layers. So how does that, when that's stimulated um, and someone is in trauma from that experience, how does that affect the birth too? So I think there's different ways we can see why it's not, um, why there's such a, a high cesarean rate for those after external cephalic version. And sometimes because people go ahead and induce right away, right? They do. And, and there was never really an intent for much of a chance for a vaginal birth within a physiological paradigm in the first place from some providers. Well, so we have to keep that in. The, the skill level of people doing ECB is completely unknown and, and variable. And in your, in your book, you also talk about doing things um, either before an ECV or instead of an ECV. Um, sideline release, other, other maneuvers that you're talking about. Maybe you could talk a little bit about even just even 30 minutes before somebody goes through an ECV, what they should do. Because most people, when they come in for an ECV at the hospital, which is where they're mostly done, they come in, they're put in bed, their IV is started, they're given, they get an NST, people are nervous, they make sure the anesthesiologist is around and the OR crew is around, and then they may give them tributyl, they may even give them an epidural, and then they 
And then they just put the, the jelly on them. Hopefully they warm it up. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And then they just go ahead and do it. They put a little bit of Trendelenburg positioning, which is tipping the head down and they go ahead and do it. And the mom's not ready. The, the pelvis isn't ready. The, the whole system isn't ready. I loved what you had to say about the things that you could do beforehand to help open things up. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I, I think that, um, you know, I've been teaching in some of the hospitals here in Southern California um, for spinning babies and in talking to different nurses, I'm like, hey, there's some things that we can do that are similarly related um, to help soften and open the space. I mean, the question is what's keeping this baby in place? How is it found more space in a breech position. And so, you know, some of those things are just typical balance things that we'll do in a, I'm, a, I'm also a spinning babies trainer. So um, I teach a lot about that, but some general balancing techniques for the full body, um, including releasing the round ligaments and also having them in Trudelenburg for a while, especially if, whether or not babies deep in the pelvis, you know, at first I, when I started doing this work, it was like, well, if the baby's high in the rib, you don't want to put them in Trendelenburg. But I think it's really helpful to put them in Trendelenburg and have, um, you'll find the, the bum will start coming down and tending to one side. And that makes it easier, you know, for the head to release afterwards. So, um, yeah, there's, there's different, um, uh, things that can be done, including something called a forward leaning inversion, sideline release, just even jiggling of the tissues, but lying down and relaxing and connecting, I think are by the nurse makes a huge difference for someone's nervous system who's about to receive some, um, uh, force to, to the baby. Uh, you know, I, I, we also have like some suggestions for providers, like when that head is, you know, jammed under that right rib, you know, you can also realize that when you roll to your side, that whole uterus falls out from underneath the rib, including the head. So it's at that time, you can put your hand there and then, and, and free the head while they're lying on their side and then have them roll to their back. So, you know, just um, trying to create some other ways um, for an external cephalic version to be kinder, gentler, have more ease, have the better experience um, if you're just freeing the breach, right? Um, cause I think a lot of providers, as you said, have variations of skill and they may just push the baby right into the rib or yeah. push the baby that seems to be engaged. You have, right? you, have you, you know, I, maybe this is a little bit pejorative, but you have the blind leading the blind. You have people who don't know what they're doing, teaching the next generation of people not to know what they're doing. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and the motivation isn't even really there. I mean, the, I think that most doctors who do versions would prefer the patient baby stay breached so they can just schedule the C-section, you know, at 7.30 on, in the morning at some point. Yeah, so, well, you know, 11% um, of cesareans in the U.S. Are, are for breach presentations. 11%. That's a good, that's a big statistic. I mean, a high number. I'm trying to figure yeah, out. Yeah, well, you know, we think only like. Math. I'm trying to figure out the math on that. Well, only four to percent of all C-sections, right? Okay, that makes sense. Of, uh, yeah, eleven percent of all C-sections, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. you could increase the C-section rate by by um, probably by about eight percent because of, you know the success rate. If you have a seventy or eighty percent success rate with your breaches, you could decrease the success uh, without a, a significant increase in uh, fetal or, or fetal mor morbidity or mortality while decreasing maternal morbidity and mortality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Hmm. 
What's what's tensegrity? Um, tensegrity is really um, talking more about. Um, we're we're back to talking about anatomy here. We're talking about the um, the systems that are in place that are like fascial continuities, um, which is probably not within what you're usually talking about, Stu. But <laughs> it is the connective tissue throughout the body that's um, carrying blood vessels, nerves, lymph, right? And um, you know, typically within um, obstetrical or medical settings. When you preserve a body with formaldehyde, all that's kind of thrown out because it um, clumps together and it's useless. But if you have um, a body that's been frozen, you can begin to um, pull off the fascia differently on different layers and you begin to see how things are connected rather than how they're separated. Um, so when one part of the body gets affected, it um, affects other parts of the body. And so someone who has a knee injury might have something that affects actually how the uterus is um, over time because it begins to pull those fossil continuities or lines of the body. 100%. I don't have a uterus, but 100% true. I mean, I, <laughs> I had a knee injury 40 years ago and, and my whole, it's had an effect on everything from essentially my, my, the back of my neck, my, um, and my jaw on down. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, so and that's thinking about other types of restoration when people have injuries or accidents, you know, um, how it affects them and, and could affect the uterine uh, position and space. You know, this goes, this goes back to what uh, we talk about a lot on the podcast is like how everything is interconnected. So, it, you know, this is a very much a midwifery kind of holistic way of looking at a body, a pregnant body, a woman's body, you know, those, a baby's, a baby's responses, you know, it's all interconnected. And that thing that we talk about, that there's a ripple effect, it goes back to what you were saying about trying to turn this baby and then hope for a vaginal delivery. Well, you've, you've just interfered with a whole bunch of processes that you have no idea about. And, yeah. and so, you know, for me, I always tell my clients when I'm, when I'm, counseling them about breach is, you know, there is a possibility, although, you know, one of the issues is that there's just a lot of limitations in terms of where you can get a provider that can give you a breach delivery. But, um, you know, for those who do have access to it, like there's nothing wrong with just having a vaginal breach delivery and not, and not trying to do an ECV. But, yeah. you know, what I really, what I really love about, about your work and this book is that it, it is more than having the intention of just turning this baby. It's a, it's an integrative process. It's a holistic process of talking about, you know, what's going on on a soul level, what's going on an emotional level. Um, and, and that's beneficial no matter what, if you go in and you have somebody really listen to you and put their hands on you in a loving and attentive way, whether or not that baby turns, there's something cellular, there's something within your heart that's getting tended to, to allow for whatever is next to, to be accepted. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like this trauma prevention is really where we're at and, you know, I love that. And so they're getting this like little bite of midwifery care. Cause so many people come, I'm seeing probably four people a week or more who are breech and most of them are in physician care and they've never come across a midwife or 
been heard or listened to in the same way. Right. And, um, and so a lot of people all end up getting, you know, further comments and texts and thank yous and, and updates later. And, you know, it's, um, they just haven't had, had someone sit and listen and be with them in that same way. And, you know, and I even go over, how do you have a sacred cesarean birth? What were you looking for within your vaginal birth? Because the, the case is that, you know, we aren't always going to be able to change these babies' positions, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's really about the baby choosing to find a new way down. And um, obviously, I'm not doing ECVs on all these physicians' clients. They can do that. I, have, I do have a lot of people come in for right before their ECV. They'll come in for all the body work before they go in, you know, the night before they go in. Um, there's a midwife in um, uh, Brazil. Her name's Maida Libertad, and she's and um, Mariana Meninas is is a do it, had done some a preliminary research with doing ultrasounds before the um, the body work and ultrasounds after the body work before their ECV, and they've been measuring pocket shifts of amniotic fluid and the. There's larger pockets in front of the fetal head and underneath the bum after doing the, the body work. So, and they've also have um, more success. What they have is they have an obstetrician who wants to just do the ECV, but if it doesn't work, she sends them to them. <laughs> they do like half an hour of body work and they send them back and then they have, um, you know, more efficacy with, with uh, ECVs. So um, you know, it's like starting to try to change those paradigms and ultimately it would be great for people to have that choice of having a vaginal bridge birth, um, doing an ECB, having a cesarean birth, what's, what's good for them. When, yeah. I, when I sit here and listen to you two talk back and forth, it's, it's, it's uh, enlightening for me. It is, I, I could just, I could just sit and quietly and say nothing because there's so much wisdom that the that the medical model never even gets into and on a, on a very concrete level i can tell you how many times i've seen a person for a consult for breach who when i go to measure their belly or i put my hands on their belly they'll say what are you doing because in the entire ob care through 36 to 37 38 weeks no one has put their hands on their belly or yeah or even leaned over and, and asked permission to the baby or the mother, may I do this? Here's what's going to happen now. Just this is stuff that I got from you. They don't, this people in my academic people in my profession would think that we're nuts for even considering that we need to talk to the baby or, or put your hands on that sort of thing. And one of the things I saw in your book, uh, Nicole, was something about repositioning the practitioner. And what what is what does that exactly mean? Because again, like I said, I had to skim your book really fast. So <laughs> what what, well, is, what does repositioning the practitioner mean? Well, I kind of always say that you know, preach allows us to see things and learn things because it actually repositions us, right? And we begin to if you're if you're, um, if you're, if you're open to looking. If you're open to looking, you know, it's when you're actually listening. And so it's um, it's repositioning us. I mean, I think that we need to look at how our even our anatomy is, our value systems within our anatomy are from are, are so embedded in how we've defined anatomy. And so we've really kind of pushed that place of anatomy from 
not just the practitioner perspective, but from, you know, the, the person who's pregnant from the baby's perspective. And, um, you know, when we use different positions and we begin to palpate differently in those positions, we start noticing things that are different. We start listening with our hands to things that are different and, um, it, it does reposition us, you know, and that we also have places, you know, we've learned our Leopold's maneuvers and in some ways that's given, that's actually the last vestiges of touch and palpation, um, Mm -hmm. within, um, sometimes even a midwifery model of care, honestly, um, not, not the traditional ones, but the ones that are, um, you know, being that are more medicalized modern the only thing left is actually touching the belly. And sometimes some of the practices even here don't do that any longer. Um, and so, you know, the thing about breach and using different positions in breach is when we began to touch, we can start to think about things differently. I mean, I think that's the blessing for me of being able to work with breach pregnancy Yes, it's a doorway to breach birth, and I can start maintaining skills that are being lost that way. But in feeling more breach in different positions, I start noticing and understanding more about the the womb space for that baby. And that includes like patterns, like baby's heads get stuck under that right rib. It's so rare. It's not the left rib. It's the right rib. It's Mm -hmm. all the anatomy converges in that upper right quadrant. And, you know, and so, so. I wouldn't have learned that had I not been working with breach and looking more closely. And so I think you're right, Stu. It's like, it's if you listen. Yeah. I love it. Listen, listening with your hands. That's, That's great. right. It's That's so right. true. Um, and, you know, when you were saying, Stu, I love, I love how open you are. And I love that, you know, we've learned from you and you've learned from us. And it's just a beautiful collaboration. But this is the reason why midwives should not be supervised or managed or have obstetricians on our boards because we're speaking different languages and we have different priorities and we're looking at things from a totally different perspective, even though we're both dealing with pregnant bodies, you know, um, we come at it from a very, very different perspective. And, and a lot of that is totally not acknowledged or understood by the obstetrical model. So yeah, that's so correct. I mean, just earlier in the podcast, I mentioned to you that Betty Ann Davis, David Hayes, and I all teach breach differently. Yeah. What if David Hayes was put in charge of teaching breach and then was censoring Betty Ann Davis and censoring me because he's <laughs> the, because there's only one way to do something. This was when I was when I was a resident. There was a there was a dictator who was the head of the department at at LA County USC. His name was Dan Michelle. Um, it got you know it may rest in peace. But but. Um, it was, it was, everyone would say it was, it's the, it's his way or the highway. You only did things one way. And when you, and on Fridays mornings, when you had to give uh, rounds and you were getting pimped by Dan Michelle, you wouldn't dare not go uh, deviate from the pathway. This is how my training was. And this is why when I came out, you know, I was not just because of him, but because of the way the training was, I was lucky at Cedars because we had many different mentors there as opposed to one thing at, at LA County USC. But you came out thinking one way. Yeah. And, and you're right. We should not have doctors. And, and even midwives, though, Liz, sometimes you guys, midwives are sitting in judgment of you. They're CNMs. They've been administrative for 30 years. They don't practice. They, they don't. Sure. Yeah. So it's you know, yeah. you're not being judged or being 
by your peers. Yeah, absolutely. That could be a whole other podcast for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, as we, as we start to like wrap up, I wanted to know, Nicole, if there is something specific that you would like for our audience to know that maybe we haven't touched on yet, that's really important to you about this book or your work or. Oh, I, I think that the importance of this work is, um, you know, you were talking about the woman with the hair of gold, right? Uh-huh. is that it's just like this this moment in time isn't standing alone you know and we're kind of kind of constantly weaving this fabric of what's happened before us what's going to happen in the past but also what's happening now and and with breach itself um you know breach was the place where obstetricians started to appropriate midwifery and start to claim part of it for themselves it was literally that place where it's like okay the midwives get the rest but we get all the babies that aren't head down And we're in charge of that. And this is where we start to regulate you. And this is like, we're going way back in Europe, you know, to, to before the 1700s, you know, that this is, this is where the regulation started. And, and they started with like, oh, we can see the inside of these bodies because we brokered this deal with the church that they get the souls and the physicians got the bodies to look at, but we won't let you look at the bodies. You know, we're telling you what's inside the bodies with our, through the lens of our value systems. And this, of course, is back then. And all of this, you know, and of course that plays into the witch trials and so much else, but all of this is Im- embedded in today, into our work today, right? And it's like, how do we start like that reclamation part process of um, extracting different things from where we are right now and be able to get back to the listening skills of the, back to the basics of our hands. and. Um, you know, and start working towards that uh, reclamation, that uh, restoration and recovery of um, this craft of midwifery, you know, and body work, right? And that's it. Uh, Jamie Mose, who's written this book with me, is uh, much deeper into anatomy and prenatal body work than I am. But, uh, and, and she did all the illustrations, right? She did. I got a couple right here. Yeah, yeah she did some amazing. Yeah. She went through, sifted through probably. 30 to 50 different like uteruses and looking at all the different layers of the innervations and they're as accurate as we could get. Um, she consulted with um, some midwives in uh, Anna Maria Rossetti, who's a midwife out of Italy, who's been doing some of this work too. And um, yeah, just uh, re-looking, looking at anatomy from another picture of how is it um, presenting in pregnancy because there's not a whole lot of pregnancy anatomy out there. You'll find some of the woodprints um, by William Hunter from the uh, 1700s where they did uh, dissections and they did woodprints of the dissections of people who had died who were pregnant. And um, those are amazing. So we use those as well in this book. Well, congratulations. Congratulations to you and Jamie. The book is The Breach Release, Opening Pathways for Midwifery and Prenatal Body Work. If they want to reach out to you or get in touch with you? What's the best uh, contact or website or Instagram or whatever you got? Um, well, you're welcome to go on my Instagram, which is Nicole Morales Midwife, and you'll find a link tree there. And you can also, about the book, uh, thebreachrelease.com has, uh, you can email us through that as well on our Gmail. Uh, the book's on Amazon. There are printer, uh, we're self-published. So um, Amazon prints it and 
You can get it on an ebook, and we're going to come out with Audible um, as well here at the beginning of next month. So, are you going to read it? Yeah, we already tried it yeah. once, but there was too much background noise. So we've just yeah. um, we're almost through re-recording it here in. Um, you know, it's a storytelling sing-song book, and I don't think yeah. people realize that. It's like you get into that, that storytelling of that reclamation of midwifery, and it just has that different um, uh, sultriness to it. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy you reading it to me on Audible for sure. Yeah. Um, is there a way that someone, you know, they read the book and, you know, for people like me, I'm, I learn much better through my hands. Um, so is there opportunities I get that people, pregnant families who are in San, um, San Diego can come and work with you, but is there a way that practitioners can learn some of this hands-on skills from you as well? Are you considering doing workshops? Well, I do um, something called the Spinning Babies Aware Practitioner Workshop, and there's different people who are teaching that. And the one that um, Jamie and I are doing and um, Emma Moreland as well, um, uh, we include like we include a lot of this information and in hands on uh, releases, um, mostly chiropractors, acupuncturists, midwives. Um, some nurses have been taking that course as well. So. That's one way you can get it. And, um, you know, at, at this point, it's like apprenticing people. So I can't I can't meet the demand I have right now. So I um, bet I bet. And and you're only going to become more in demand with this book. So, again, as Stu said, congratulations on birthing that baby, because I know it's a lot of work that goes into writing a book and it's yeah. great to see you. Great to see your face. I know that yeah. people on the podcast don't get to see your face, but it's nice for us to get to see you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's nice to see both of you as well and to be in community with you. Thanks, Nicole. Agree. All right. Agree. <laughs> okay. So, Bliss. Yeah. Before we wrap up, mm -hmm. um, let's go ahead and um, talk about your favorite topic, which you're the expert at and I'm not. Which Boobies? Is Boobs, right. And boobies. <laughs> you're the you're the birthing instincts boob expert, and I'm I'm a wannabe. <laughs> so tell us about it, yeah? I love it. Um, Bamboobies is a wonderful company that um, prioritizes natural, holistic products. So they've got a line of teas. Um, the the product that I originally fell in love with was their heart shaped. Um, breast pads that are made out of bamboo. They're super soft. They're great for the environment, um, but they've so expanded their line. Um, they have tank tops and um, balms and all kinds of wonderful products that are good for mom, good for baby and good for the environment. So we really love that they are supporting the podcast and by you going and supporting them, it's it helps us continue to give this information. So let them know about the code and all of that. Do. Yeah. And so um, if you go to Bamboobies website, bamboobies.com, um, go to their marketplace because they, they have a lot more than just the the, um, the breast pads and the tank top and stuff like that. They have all these, as you said, teas. One, one of the products that I'm highlighting today is they have a, a diaper rash spray. Uh, again, they're eco-friendly. So these things are all sort of bio-friendly, that sort of thing. And, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, not my products. I don't use them, but I think that uh, for our listeners, there's a lot of people out there. Just at least go to their website. It's bamboobies.com. And if you put in the uh, code instincts, 
That's I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S. Um, you get 40% off your order and there's no minimum. So 40% off we think is one of the most generous things we've ever seen. And so go to bamboobies.com, uh, code word instincts. Okay. Great. So before we wrap up today, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, or catch up on a couple more things. One was um, the enthusiasm which, which they want to vaccinate five to 11 year olds who don't need the vaccine, who aren't sick, who aren't dying, and they want to give it to them anyway. And we talked about how organizations like UCLA and uh, the NIH and all these things are just go, 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 rah, 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 get the vaccine. You really need the vaccine. Some mayors and governors are jumping on board. It's going to become part of our vaccine schedule in California. You can be sure of that. But I just saw that Big Bird now from Sesame Street has jumped on board and is promoting the vaccine. You know, this is one of those places where you where you could go like, like on a Sunday watching football and not have to be politically involved. And the same thing, kids could go to, and they could see a, a, a rainbow of different, of different philosophies and beliefs there without getting, you know, talking about political health issues, all right? And now, now Big Bird is, is sort of just spoiled the, um, the name of Sesame Street as far as I'm concerned. This is my feeling, and I just think that they should have stayed out of it. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't see this as a political issue, and I think it's really sad that it's been politicized. So, but I hear you. That uh, yeah. Why? They, why are we? Are why? What's the eagerness to? What's the emergency use for vaccinating children who don't have an emergency? It, you know, the whole thing is just so sinister. Okay, so the last thing I want to finish talking about today was I, I mentioned that I gave a speech. Obviously, I'd like people to go look at it on my Rumble page. And again, the link is on the link tree. Just scroll down. It's the most recently posted one. Um, I can't read the whole speech because it takes about 23 minutes to do the speech if I'm just reading it and not getting choked up in the middle of it. But I'd like to just read a little bit. I'd like to read the intro and then the ending so that people can get an idea of where I was going with this. But I, I, I spoke to the graduating class for the Association of Texas Midwives. And it was both live and remote. And it was really nice. It was a very nice event. Um, and it starts like this. When I was a little boy, I had dreams of flying, running into the wind with my arms outstretched and soaring over my neighborhood, wanting to look down for the bad guys, wanting to save the day like Superman. It was a simpler time. And like most kids in those days, I emulated my heroes. For me, there was Thor with his mighty hammer and Superman leading the Justice League. Harmon Killebrew was hitting home runs. Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. John Wayne was defeating the bad guys and Neil Armstrong was taking one small step for mankind. I cried with my mother as we buried JFK and there was my father working six days a week to support his family. Good, strong men, all role models with an image of God and country and family values. These were the heroes that shaped my youth, imprinting the desire to follow the golden rule. So were the earliest memories of the medical profession. TV doctors like Marcus Welby, MD, loved by all and knowing his patients by their first name. And Ben Casey fighting the establishment on behalf of his patients. Ethical and dedicated to the, even the, to the core, I believed even then that Dr. Seuss was a real doctor. <laughs> it was an innocent time back then, a simpler time. The bad kids just had long hair and threw spitballs. We laugh now, but good and evil were clearly demarcated. The national debt was 300 billion and gas was 25.9 cents a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> um, today, the world is, you are entering is much more chaotic and complex as I'm addressing the, the graduates. Yesterday's heroes have become today's villains. 
ostracized or canceled or even erased from history for something they did long ago. The Bible says Noah was a righteous man, and then adds, in his generation. There was wisdom then that we should hesitate to hold others to a standard we cannot meet and only judge them by the time in which they lived. Now the Bible is mocked, Thomas Jefferson erased, John Wayne is too masculine, Superman has disavowed the American way, and even Dr. Seuss is now labeled as a racist. Who are today's heroes? Who are tomorrow's? Will we have any? Sadly, this is the confusion of the world you are inheriting and the one you must repair. And then I finish with, um, well, the last paragraph says, Mahatma Gandhi said, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. We have a duty to truth and protection of those in our charge. My generation has not done well. Yours will do better, must do better. Go forth and be an example for all of us and for your children and live your next life to the fullest. Be a problem solver, ask questions, challenge authority. Do not bow to it. Be your own hero. Do not wait for Superman. He is not coming. Oh, I love that, Stu. It's true. He's not coming. Got to be your own hero, for sure. Yeah. That's great. I will. That's I will it. go and watch it on Rumble. I want to see. I want to see. That's yeah. that's today's podcast. And <laughs> uh, until next week. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 